Well, good morning again. Uh, good to see you again. Hope you had a good night's rest. And uh, we're going to turn again to uh, Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read again the first 11 verses. And uh, this time we're going to focus uh, a bit more on the latter part of that passage. Last night, as you remember, we looked at this same passage and we focused on verses 1 to 8. And uh, today we're going to focus on verses 9 to 11. But let's read the whole section together. Let's hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. Father, our help is in you, the maker of heaven and earth. So we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit concentrate our minds, conform our wills, and stir our affections for you, the living God. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praise. Amen. Uh, years ago, I remember being at a conference and uh, passing a display of a mission organization in the exhibit hall. Uh, the poster at the stand of this mission organization had various biblical texts on it. And one of the texts was Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then there was a picture of a cross on the same display. And on the horizontal bar were three words. God needs you. God needs you. What was the mission organization trying to communicate? Well, they were trying to say that God wanted people from every tribe and people and language to come and worship King Jesus. But in order for that to happen, God needed people to help, such that if they didn't help, was the well, was implied, then God's mission wouldn't be completed. God needs you in order to accomplish his work. And if you don't help, 
then God's work of world missions won't get done. That is one approach to world missions. There's another approach to world missions, and it goes something like this. Uh, God is so sovereign that he will redeem people from every tribe and people and language to come and worship King Jesus, even if you do not help him. In other words, God doesn't need you. God is going to complete his work of world missions without you. This second approach has been less rare, in uh, has been more rare, I should say, in world missions, but it has been present. Historically, it's been called hyper-Calvinism. It's a movement that Charles Spurgeon had to correct in the late 19th century. Now, these two approaches to world mission, the one that says God needs you, and if you don't help, God's mission isn't going to get done. And the other one that says God doesn't need you, he's going to complete his mission anyway. Those two approaches to world mission can be equally applied to the topic of prayer. The one approach to prayer says God needs you to pray in order to accomplish his work. And if you don't pray, then God's work won't get done. In other words, God needs you. The second approach to prayer says God is so sovereign that he will accomplish his work no matter what, even if you don't pray. In other words, God doesn't need you. Now, I suspect in this church, uh, your temptation is not towards the first approach. I suspect it's not to think that God needs you to accomplish his work on earth. He's going to accomplish it anyway. He is sovereign. Our temptation, I suspect, is more likely to think that precisely because God is sovereign, he doesn't need us to complete his work. Or in this case, God doesn't need us to pray. And therein lies the dilemma for us. If God is truly sovereign, if God is going to accomplish his purposes in this world, in missions and in each of our lives, why should we pray? If it's going to happen anyway, why pray? If God is sovereign and ordains whatsoever comes to pass before anything has come to pass, why should we pray? If God is going to accomplish his purposes anyway, doesn't that make prayer pointless? The dilemma of praying to a sovereign God is actually present in this passage in Philippians chapter 1. I wonder, as you saw it, as we read it, it's the dilemma is created in uh, or by verse 6. <clears throat> in verse 3, Paul thanks God with joy for two things. First, uh, verse 5, he thanks God with joy for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. And then second, verse 6, he thanks God for the joy Oh, sorry, with joy, for the fact that the work God started in the Philippians will be completed at the day of Jesus Christ. So God's ability to finish what he starts is one of the two causes for Paul's prayer of thankfulness. But here's the question. Does the truth of God's sovereign ability to finish what he began in a person's life motivate us 
to prayer doesn't mean that we don't need to pray for that person. Why pray for another Christian if God is going to complete the work that he started in them anyway? You see the dilemma? Paul says he is convinced that God is going to complete the work that he started in the Philippian Christians. So the dilemma is, should he pray for them? Why pray if God is going to complete the work that he began in them anyway? You see the dilemma? This is the dilemma of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in prayer. The sovereignty of God to accomplish his purposes and our responsibility to pray. That's the dilemma here. And Paul answers that dilemma by giving us three reasons why we should pray for each other. Number one, prayer serves God's purposes. Prayer serves God's purposes. Look at God's purpose in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's purpose in verse 6 is to complete the work he began in believers' lives at the final day of Jesus Christ. Now, look at Paul's prayer in verses 9 to 11. He prays that the love of believers may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent, so that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It is the two references to the day of Jesus Christ in verse 6 and then in verse um, 10. It is these two references to the day of Jesus Christ that link together God's sovereign purposes in verse 6 and Paul's prayer in verses 9 to 11. Paul is thankful that God is going to complete his work in believers' lives at the final day of Jesus Christ. But then Paul prays for believers to be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, prayer serves God's purposes. To put it differently, Prayer is God's chosen means to accomplish his chosen end. Prayer is God's chosen means to accomplish his chosen end. Prayer is a means to an end, and it is God's chosen means to his chosen end. Think about what God's chosen end is in this passage. It's there in verse 6. To complete the work that he has begun in our lives. What is the means to complete that work? It's there in verses 9, 10, and 11. To bring it to completion through the prayers of other Christians. God's chosen end is to complete the work that he began in our lives, but the means to bring that work to completion is prayer. Other Christians praying for us. Now, we can further appreciate the place of prayer and God's purposes if we take a step back from prayer and focus in on what this work is that God is doing in us in verse 6. What is this good work that God begins and promises to finish at the day of Jesus Christ? Uh, is it the good work of justification? 
of putting us right with God? Or is it the good work of sanctification, of making us more like God? Or is it something different again? I had a, a, a pastor friend in South Africa many years ago who planted a church. And under their church banner that they, they were renting a building at the school, at the University of Natal, KwaZulu-Natal in Peter Maritzburg. And they had a banner on the university campus to encourage people to come to church, uh, to advertise their church. And the banner had a catchy phrase. It, it gave the name of the church, the time of their services. And then underneath, at the bottom on the banner, it said, Come as you are. Come as you are. Now, every statement that a person makes is a theological statement. That church was making a, a theological statement. And that catchy phrase under the banner made a profound theological statement. Come as you are. It was the basis on which my friend could get to explain the gospel to people. What the phrase communicated to people was, you can't bring anything or do anything to make yourself acceptable to God. Come as you are. Dressing up or down doesn't make you acceptable to God. Eating certain foods or avoiding them doesn't make you acceptable to God. Using a particular version of the Bible doesn't make you acceptable to God. Having uh, good deeds in your life, helping in charity organizations doesn't make you acceptable to God. The only thing that makes you acceptable to God is what Jesus has done for you in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. There's nothing that you can do for him. You can't bring anything to God. You can't add anything to Jesus's work for you. You need to come to God as you are. A sinner, come as you are. As Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Come as you are. That's what my friend's church was trying to communicate. They were trying to say something about the doctrine of communication, of, sorry, of justification. But after a few years of planting this church, my pastor friend told me that he had added something to that phrase on the banner, not actually on the banner, but at church, when he would welcome people to church, he would say, we invite you to come this morning as you are. And then he would add, but we pray that you will not stay the same as you are. Come as you are, but we pray that you will not stay the same as you are. That addition was a statement about the doctrine of sanctification. Come as you are was the basis on which my friend could speak to people about justification. There's nothing you can bring to Jesus. He's done it all. Come as you are. But the second thing, we pray that you will not stay the same as you are, was a statement about sanctification, about being made more like Jesus. Because when God saves us by his grace, he doesn't just give us a new status before him on the outside. He also begins to work on us from the inside. When we come to God as we are, through faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous on the outside. But then he also starts to make us righteous on the inside by his Holy Spirit. 
The work outside us, being put right with God, is called justification. The work inside us, being made more like God, is called sanctification. And those two works together, justification and sanctification, constitute the good work that Paul is referring to here in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is the good work of salvation which involves justification and sanctification. But did you notice the two little words, in you? The good work that he has begun began in you. They're present again in chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, if you just flick forward to that passage. Chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's good work is a work done in us, and it is a continual work that had a beginning at some point in our lives and will have an end at the day of Jesus Christ when we are made perfect in spirit and body. Here's the great good news of the gospel. God picks us up where we are, not where we ought to be. But he doesn't want us to stay where we were when he picked us up. He wants to do a work of grace in our lives that leads to a genuine change from the inside out. does not want us to stay the same as we were when we first came to him. He wants us to be different from the day he picked us up until the day of Jesus Christ. He wants us to change. He's doing a good work in us. That's the good work that Paul is referring to here. It begins with justification and it continues with sanctification. Okay, so I've spent a bit of time on the good work, so let me go back to tying in how this prayer Okay, uh, links with the purposes of God or how prayer links with the purposes of God. God's purpose is to complete this good work of God's grace in our lives in which he justifies us and then changes us from the inside out to be more like Christ. And here's the thing, the way in which God will complete that work is through prayer. Prayer is God's chosen means to complete the work that he began in us. Prayer serves God's good work of making us more like Christ. This is the first reason why we should pray, because it serves God's purposes. It serves the purpose of God completing the work that he began in us. Prayer serves God's purposes. Second, prayer sanctifies God's people. Prayer sanctifies God's people. Remember, we're asking the question, how do we fix the dilemma of God's sovereignty and our prayers? Why pray if God is sovereign? Well, first answer, 
because prayer serves the purposes of God. Second answer, because prayer sanctifies God's people. Verses 9 to 11, prayer sanctifies God's people. This follows on from what I've just been talking about. If God's good work in us is the work of grace to change us, then Paul's prayer in verses 9 to 11 fits hand and glove with God's purpose to complete that work on the day of Jesus Christ. So remember, verse 6, God's good work in us is to change us, justify us, and then sanctify us, change us from the inside out. Now look at what he prays in verse 9 to 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is a prayer for sanctification. Now, I've been using this word sanctification uh, a bit already, and I wonder uh, how it makes you feel, sanctification. I remember listening to 24 talks on the doctrine of sanctification by a Reformed Baptist minister. That's right, 24 talks on the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Those sermons had a profound impact on me, uh, but they were heavy and demanding. Uh, There wasn't much color in them. Look at how Paul paints God's work of sanctification in our lives. It's full of color and brightness, love abounding excellence approving, pure and blameless living, righteous fruit filling. Love abounding, excellence approving, pure and blameless living, righteous fruit filling. It's full of color and brightness. You can see how each of these parts, each of these things, sorry, is part of us being changed from the inside out to be more like Jesus. But before we look in detail at the individual parts of that prayer, I want you to see how the parts of Paul's prayer connect to each other, first of all. So we're going to look at the parts, but first let's look at the connections in verses 9 to 11. Paul actually only prays for one thing. Do you notice that? Verse 9, that their love would abound still more and more. But that one thing, that their love would abound still more and more, has two domino-like effects, two domino-like purposes. So the one thing that Paul prays is that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And then he gives two purposes or two effects of that prayer, which you can see in the two so clauses. Do you see that? The immediate purpose is seen at the beginning of verse 10. Uh, and It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Here's the first so, the immediate purpose. So that you may approve what is excellent. And then there's the long-term purpose. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the immediate purpose that their love would abound more and more, is so that they would approve what is excellent. The ultimate purpose is so that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So connecting all the parts together, we can see that Paul prays for one thing, 
that their love would abound more and more, their love for God and their love for each other. And that that one prayer, that their love would abound more and more, would have two effects, two domino-like effects. The first, that they would approve what is excellent. The second, that they would therefore be pure and blameless and fruitful on the day when Jesus returns. So that's the connection between these parts. Praise for one thing that has two knock-on effects. Now let me pack, unpack each of these parts in this prayer in verses 9 to 11. Uh, the main thing, as I say, that Paul prays for is their love, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Uh, the object of this love is not specified, and perhaps that is deliberate on Paul's part, so that it would include both love for God and love for others. Uh, but note that it is not just any kind of love. Uh, do you remember the Beatles song? All you need is love, love, love. All you need is love, love, love. Uh, I'm tone deaf, so I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, I've seen these mu musicians playing so well up here, I'm pretty sure they could give us a wee rendition later. Uh, but that, what's the problem with the Beatles song about love? Well, they never define it. It's just airy, fairy, love, love, love. Well, Paul does define the kind of Christian love Christians need. You see that in verse 9? That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. It's an informed, discriminating love. This is not just love, love, love. This is love with knowledge. This is love with discernment. This is love informed by a personal, intimate knowledge of God. This is love that has practical, concrete wisdom in its decision-making. So it's not just any kind of love. It's an informed and discerning love for God and for others. And the immediate purpose of this love is so that Christians would approve <clears throat> what is excellent. Now, this word excellent is uh, literally rendered the things which differ. But Paul isn't praying that the Philippians would just be able to differentiate between things. No, he prays that they would be able to choose between things. That is, to choose what is excellent between two choices. To choose those things which are superior, which are best. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Choices, choices, choices. That's the context of what Paul means here in knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, so that you might choose what is excellent, so that you might decide what is excellent. He wants the Philippians to choose what is superior, essential, vital, best in the hundreds of choices that they face every day. Now, sadly, <clears throat> too many of us settle for bad decision-making in the many choices that we face in our lives, in the many choices and decisions we face in our ministries and in our churches. And Paul is not interested in a sort of basic, well, that'll do kind of attitude, or that'll get us by for another year, or doesn't really matter what choice we make here. 
No, Paul wants us as Christians and as churches to choose what is excellent, to approve what is best. Now, you may be asking, okay, I get what you're saying, Johnny, we're to approve what is excellent, but how? How do we make excellent decisions in everyday life with all the decisions that we have to make regarding family, children, relationships, a courtship, home life, work, college studies, school, emails, internet usage, time management, service at church. How do we make excellent decisions? How do I know how to approve what is best? Well, the answer to deciding what's best depends on what your aim is and what you love most. The answer to deciding what is best depends on what your aim is, what your goal is, and what you love most. Let me illustrate both of those aspects of deciding what's best. Let's illustrate the aim, the goal. Uh, Imagine a father uh, with five children. He goes out to buy a car. He's thinking Porsche or people carrier. Okay, uh, Mercedes or minivan. Okay, uh, which is best for the father with five kids? Well, it all depends what he's aiming for: speed or space. Fortunately for the father of five, yeah, his ultimate aim is space, not speed. Okay, and because space for five kids is what he needs to aim for in choosing a car. Buying the people carrier is the more excellent decision over the Porsche. Okay, Sorry for you men who were hoping for a Porsche at Christmas from your wife. It's going to be the people carrier. Okay, <clears throat> The minivan, not the Mercedes, is what's coming. Okay, The ultimate aim descri- decides what's best. So that's one way of helping you approve what's best. Think, what's my aim? Now then, let me think about what decision I should make. And Paul gives us that ultimate aim in verses 10 and 11. So that you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the long-term goal of Paul's prayer for the Philippian Christians. Pure, blameless, righteously fruitful living to the glory of God. Pure and blameless in our motives, in our actions and living, righteously fruitful in our lives and ministries. That's the goal, and it's that goal that will help us to make excellent choices in our work, in our relationships, in our family, in our purchases, whatever it is we do in life. If we can keep those as the big goals, pure living, is this decision going to keep me pure as a Christian? Is this decision going to keep me blameless? Will this decision make me more fruitful with righteous living in my life? Will it benefit my church to the glory of God? Is what I'm about to choose going to make me more pure, blameless, and fruitful to the glory of God? That's a good question to ask when you come to make decisions. 
Of course, it doesn't give us the exact answers, but it can be a guide as we try to prove what is excellent. Uh, but deciding what's best does not just depend on what you aim for. It also depends on what you love most. What shapes our decision-making is not just what our ultimate aim is, it's what we love. That's why Paul really only plays, prays for one thing. Remember, what does he pray for? That their love would abound more and more. Why is love the one thing that Paul prays for in this prayer? Because love determines all our choices. We choose what we love. We choose what we love. Uh, let me illustrate that for you. Every time I go into a coffee shop, um, I never choose a coffee. Don't like it. I've got no love for coffee. My wife, who is from Sydney, Australia, is a coffee snob. She loves her coffee. And uh, when we go in, she loves choosing her coffee. When I go in to the cafe, I never choose a coffee because I have no love for it. My wife, every time, she chooses a coffee. I choose the apple tizer because I like apple juice. Okay? What's going on there? What's controlling my choice? I'm being driven by my desires, by my likes, by what I love. What we love determines what we choose. That's why St. Augustine, the early church father, said this, <clears throat> love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. Such a liberating statement. Such a wise statement from Augustine. He wasn't saying go live whatever way you want. He was saying love God and then go live whatever way you want. Because the way you want to live, if you love God, will be the way God wants you to live. Love God and do what you want. So, that's another way to help you as you make decisions. Love God. What will please God as I make this decision? So that's what can help our decision-making in the many choices of life, because that's what this prayer is about. It's, the, it's about the messiness of everyday decision-making. And Paul shows us that love for God and others and the aim of pure, blameless, righteous, fruitful living will help us approve what's excellent. And this is why Paul prays for the Philippians. Because love abounding and excellence approving, pure, blameless, righteously fruitful living only comes through prayer. Let me say that again. Love abounding, excellence approving, pure, blameless, righteously fruitful living only comes through prayer. One of God's chosen means to sanctify his people is prayer. Prayer sanctifies God's people. That is the second reason why Paul prays. Even though he knows God is sovereign, even though he knows God is going to complete the work that he began in these Philippians, he still prays for them because he knows that prayer is the means by which God will complete the work in them. And so he prays. Prayer serves God's purposes. Second, prayer 
sanctifies God's people. And third, and finally, prayer sources God's praise. Prayer sources God's praise. I had to find something beginning with S. So I went for sources, but I'll explain what I mean. Well, follow the logic of the text with me. Let's start at the end and work backwards, okay? Here's a, here's a good um, tactic or tip for doing Bible study. Sometimes it's good to start at the end of the passage and work backwards so you can follow the logic, okay? So let's start at the end of verse 11 and work backwards. How is God glorified and praised? Well, verse 10 and 11, by his people being filled with the fruit of righteousness and living pure and blameless lives until the day of Jesus. Okay. How are God's people filled with the fruit of righteousness? How do they live pure and blameless lives through the day of Christ Jesus? Verse 10a, by approving what is excellent. Okay. How do God's people approve what is excellent? Verse 9. By their love abounding more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Okay. How do God's people abound in love more and more with knowledge and all discernment? Verse 9. By Paul praying. Do you see it? Prayer sources God's praise. What brings God's praise in verse 11? Righteously fruitful living, verse 10. What's the source of righteously fruitful living? Approving what is excellent. How do they get to approve what's excellent? By their love abounding more and more. How does their love abound more and more? By Paul praying for them. You see it? You see how prayer is the powerhouse or powerhouse, as you say here in America? The powerhouse of God's praise. Praise is the end goal. To the praise, to the glory and praise of God. What sources, what energizes, what gives life to the glory and praise of God? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer sources God's praise by bringing about sanctified people. People who bring praise and glory to God by their living. Uh, Years ago, when my wife and I lived in Cambridge, I decided to become like my father and started gardening, planting my own vegetables. I was brought up in the countryside in Northern Ireland. My dad, every summer, had this massive vegetable garden. And uh, when I got into my mid-30s, I became very like my dad. I started planting vegetables. And I bought some tomato plants. And uh, one night, months later, when we were eating our tomatoes at dinner time, Jackie and I were both praising the tomatoes, or tomatoes, as you say here. Tomatoes, tomato, tomato, tomato. And uh, there we were eating these tomatoes that were succulent, they were tasty, they were great. And there we were praising the tomatoes. Well, how did we get such succulent and tasty tomatoes to the point where we were praising them? At the dinner table, did we just plant tomato plants and leave them? Well, at first, that's what I did do. But then my dad, the veteran gardener, said to me that you need to add tomato juice 
If you want to get really tasty, succulent tomatoes, you've got to add special tomato juice. So I bought some tomato juice, tomato juice, and I added it to the tomato plants. Now, what was the source of our praise for the tomatoes? It was the juice. It was tomato juice. It was the tomato juice that led to a harvest of juicy tomatoes, which led us sitting around our dinner table praising the tomatoes. Well, likewise in the Christian life, what is the source of God's praise for a righteously fruitful Christian life? What is the source of it? The prayer of other Christians. Prayer is like tomato juice. Tomato juice. When you pray for other Christians, you are feeding their lives like I was feeding that tomato plant so that they can produce righteously fruitful living to the glory of God. Now, you may be thinking, if you're following me, Johnny, are you saying that my prayer can determine whether or not God gets praise? Such that if I don't pray, then God doesn't get praise? We're back to the dilemma, aren't we? Should you pray or should you not pray? If God is sovereign and he's going to accomplish the work that he began in us so that on the last day our lives will be to the praise and glory of God, why pray if he's going to do it anyway? Would the tomato juice, sorry, would the tomatoes have been juicy and succulent if I hadn't added the tomato juice? Well, let me take you back to that mission display in the exhibit hall I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. Do you remember the picture of the cross with the words, three words on the horizontal bar of the cross? God needs you. Does God need you in order to complete his work of world missions? Does God need you to pray in order to, to complete his sanctifying work in people's lives? If prayer It's God's means to accomplish God's chosen end. What happens if we don't pray? What happens if we don't put the tomato juice into the tomato plant? Prayer, as we've seen, serves God's purposes. Prayer, as we've seen, sanctifies God's people. Prayer, as we've seen, sources God's praise. So the big question is, what happens if you don't pray? Do God's purposes not come about? Are God's people not sanctified? Is God not praised? The answer is very simple. Prayer is God's means to God's end. But if we don't pray, then God will raise up someone else to pray in our place. And we will miss out. If I could play with the illustration, if I didn't put the tomato juice into the plant pot, someone else would have to get the juicy tomatoes. See, what should have been written on that horizontal bar on the cross, on the mission display in the exhibit hall, was not, God needs you, but rather, God invites you. 
God invites you. And it's the same with prayer. God doesn't need you to pray as if his sovereign purposes somehow hang in suspension until you pray. God doesn't need you to pray. No, God invites you to pray. Because if you don't pray, he will invite someone else to pray in your place. And you and I will miss out. God doesn't need us. But he invites us to be an essential part of getting him praise through fruitful living of Christian people. So may I encourage you to pray, to be an essential part of God's purposes in this world, in sanctifying fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and accomplishing his mission in the world. So let us turn to him now and let us pray. Father, I pray that this prayer, uh, that this, sorry, sermon uh, would not hinder prayer, uh, but help prayer. I pray, Father, it would not uh, take us away from being motivated to pray, but I pray, Lord, it would energize us to pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would give us a big view of your sovereignty, that you would help us uh, not to think that you need us somehow to accomplish your purposes, but that rather that you invite us to pray and to pray well and to pray often. And so I pray, Father, for us all here, may our love for you and for each other abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. May we approve what is excellent in our lives so that we are pure and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. Fill us, I pray, with the fruits of righteousness and all to the praise and glory of your Father. And we ask this in your name. Amen.